So the text is on the PowerPoint. I wanted to as well to read from the ESV English Standard Version. So this is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eric. Ah. Appreciate the, oh, as always, your, your prayers, and I'm so grateful for this is the opportunity to receive new members. Uh, to me, it's always a sweet time to see that people have taken, taken that step and making that commitment. Um, so uh, thanks. You can be part of that as, as well. And, you know, as we open up God's Word uh, today and try to unpack it just a bit. Let me pray just real briefly one more time. Father, we give you this time. We pray you would arrest our attention and that the words of truth would come alive in, in our hearts. And whether it does or not, it is true. It is your word. Uh, but at the same time, we, we want to interact it in a way that acknowledges that reality because it is designed to be food for our souls. So those of us who are hungry today may we be well-fed. And those of us who don't recognize our hunger, would you stir up a hunger for us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been doing a series on our five core values, and today is the, the fifth and the final core value. And it's being spirit-empowered. So if you've been uh, along with us, we've been doing this as kind of a, a chance since we had a significant event in our church life of becoming a, a particular or an organized church to say, who are we? What's at the core of all that we do? And it's a good reminder because sometimes we forget. Sometimes I forget. So we're, we're calling ourselves back to the anchors, to the pillars of what we believe God has called us to be here in this local community. And today, the fifth, fifth anchor, the fifth core, is being spirit-empowered. And really, the title unpacks what we have in mind as much as anything else. When we talk about being spirit-empowered, we have 
This idea of embracing dependence and also finding strength. And when I say embracing dependence, what I mean is we recognize our desperate need for God's Holy Spirit if we're going to make any success in what we call the Christian life. You know, when we looked at John chapter 20 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8, and we saw that we are sent ones, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, his first encounter with his disciples is to tell them, receive the Holy Spirit. I am sending you. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right, as he's ascending back into heaven to be with the Father, he gives the church its mission. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. And we looked at that. We unpacked the book of Acts. And the power source then for us living our Christian life, living out our identity, is not us. We're not the power source. The Holy Spirit is. And we need to embrace our dependence in order to live out that core value. And most cultures around the world, certainly the American culture, is built around this sense of autonomy, of uh, we determine our own fate, of we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we do it. And of course, we work hard, but the danger that comes in that is that, frankly, it is a very anti-Christian mentality. If you are, in fact, a member of God's body and you have been filled by his spirit, then your power source is something beyond you. If you, if you think of two broad worldviews, atheism and theism, just as two broad worldviews, atheism saying there is no God, it's a very consistent way to live out your life, if you believe there's no God, to do everything in your own strength. I mean, who else do you have to rely on? Uh, maybe, maybe family and, and friends. And, but at the end of the day, the weight is on you. It's survival of the fittest if you're going to be consistent with that mentality. And then you have theism. Theism is a, a different worldview that says there is a God. And if, if there is a God, then you are a contingent being. You're not God. And you're dependent on something else. In fact, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of recognizing your design. You have been designed to live in a finite period of time, go to the, most, you know, the nearest cemetery, graveyard, and see if anybody has a 17, 17, 2, and nothing filled in afterwards. We all have family trees, and people live and die. We're alive now. There'll be a time when on that tombstone, there's a 1971, which is when I was born, Vintage year for champagne. <laughs> or not so much. Two, I don't know what the number is. But it's probably going to have a two and a zero. Pretty confident about that. When Jesus raises from the dead and one of his disciples comes, the angel at the tomb said, say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's the only one who doesn't have that second number attached to it. He's got a date when he died, but then he rose from the dead. So what do you do with that when you're making a tombstone? There's only one non-contingent being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the greatest tragedy then is when people who call themselves follower of Christ live like atheists, as if there is no God. 
And I don't just mean in a moral sort of way. I mean in a dependence kind of way. If we are really going to be serious about what we call this walk of faith, we have to recognize we are completely dependent beings. Utterly dependent. Recognizing that reality will shape the way that you look at life and the way that you live your life. There are moments in our lives maybe when we recognize our dependence more than others. We start thinking if we're clicking along and our health is good and work is okay and everybody in the family is doing all right, I got this. And as things slowly crumble, perhaps you still say, well, I, I, got, I got this a little bit. Maybe even stronger because you've got that sense of independence, but then smack, you run into something that is out of your control. And where are you going to turn? On 9-11... Churches were flooded afterwards because they realized there is no guarantee of what is happening next. And then life goes on and, and nothing happens and you go back to your old ways. What we want to do as a core value is say whether everything looks like it's going fine or not, we must desperately depend on God's Holy Spirit. We have to. Otherwise... We start building our own kingdoms. Or when we have what the world might call success, it's easy for us to say, look at what we've done. You know, church growth is kind of the same way. New people showing up, what have we done? A lot of times the answer is like, absolutely nothing. Except for be faithful to the preaching of God's word, to our core values. This is what Paul said. You know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. God is in charge of the growth. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives new life, the regeneration of a soul. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, what's all this talk about being born again? And Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is trying to do the physiological math behind it. Jesus, you're born of the Spirit, bro. That's probably what Jesus said and, you know, appropriate Jewish idiosyncrasies. Don't you get it? This is a work of God. And it's not just a work at the beginning point. Paul later in his letters would say, you began by the Spirit. Are you so foolish that you're trying to continue in this Christian life without the Spirit? You began by the Spirit, you continue by the Spirit. There is a spirit of dependence. And in that, when we accept, embrace that, not run away from it, be upset with it, but embrace it, then we find our strength. We find a source of strength well beyond ourselves. And when trials and difficulties and the hardships of life come, there's an opportunity, if we're being spirit-empowered, to have a completely different, not only perspective, but capacity to endure. That's just, that's just the way God designed us. That's how we function with him. And we all know that there's something inside of us, this sin nature resident that's constantly kicking against that. So we want as a church to say, beware of self-effort. Beware of believing that you can do enough to earn God's love at some point after you've become a believer, as if you did enough on the front end while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. 
When we say embracing dependence, that's part of what we mean. One of the, one of the places we embrace it the most, frankly, is in prayer. I, I, would, I would submit to you that a person who's really dependent on the Spirit is a prayerful person. So you might do a little bit of self-evaluation, if, if, that's, if that's accurate. How much are you leaning into that dependence? Because prayer is a realm where God takes the, that which is unseen and makes it seen. And sometimes there's a lot of time attached to it. And your faith may, may, you may live in dependence your whole life and never see in your own time what came about. But we have stories in the Bible, story after story of people who lived that way. And then years later on our time frame, it came about because they were in prayer. God uses that, that dependence. If, if you're not praying, you're depending on yourself to get things done. And so when it happens, you can look to your own effort. We find our strength because in our weakness, then we are strong. When God steps in and does something we cannot do on our own, then he is glorified. And what I want you to see that this morning is the significance of the resurrection around this concept of being spirit-empowered. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, which is a passage all about the spirit and his work in the believer's life. In verse 11, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So it's, it's interesting, who rose Jesus from the dead? If you look at a compilation of scriptures, it was a Trinitarian reality. Sometimes God the Father is said to, sometimes Christ, sometimes the Spirit. So we know here, Paul's focusing on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in raising a life from, from who was dead to, to alive. That's the work, that's the power of the Spirit, taking something completely dead and bringing that thing to life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And Paul is saying, the spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, Easter Sunday, resurrection, he is living in you. That's, that's mind-blowing. The spirit who spoke Jesus come out from the grave is living in you. That power source. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The resurrection, Easter Sunday, is very much attached by God's grace to this idea of being spirits empowered. You see that in that text. And I, I, I think that's kind of mind-blowing. And Peter, it, it just want to look uh, uh, three things that come from this passage in Peter, three applications of the reality of Christ, Christ's resurrection that apply to us now. And it's interesting that Peter writes this, so we'll transition from Paul to Peter. You remember Peter, perhaps, when Jesus first said, hey, I'm going to die. What did Peter say? No. You're not going to die. <laughs> That's not going to happen. What did Peter think? Jesus, he thought Jesus was going to restore a kingdom that would last forever. 
And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He knew the tough pathway he had to go. But he also knew if he didn't die, he wouldn't raise from the dead. He wouldn't be the first fruits guaranteeing that when Peter has that date on his tombstone, what would come next? Jesus rising from the dead guarantees all the things that Peter talks about. And Peter would never have known those if he hadn't died. But Peter was trying to tell Jesus, I got a better plan. And Jesus recognizes that's not really you talking and you don't have the right perspective. You're just a foolish child. He doesn't say that. He's actually a little harsher. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's pretty rough stuff. It's not you And so when we open up First Peter, you have that backdrop in mind, right? Peter now realizes the benefits of Christ's death and his rising from the dead. And so with that in mind, with all that in mind, and that's a lot to tie together, Peter has, in this passage, at least three things Benefits that come from the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. And here's what they are. He says, first off, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the source of new life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. And remember, the rest of that says new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is how... Anybody has the hope of new life. Jesus rose from the dead. That's how it comes. Birth, here, new birth, always signals life. When there's a baby born, there's great celebration. What's the name going to be? What's this person going to turn out to be like in the future? Just the, everything that's there, it's, it springs forth. Something new is happening. It's a fresh start. And God's mercy is manifest in giving us a new life. And we already saw that Nicodemus came and said, what's this stuff about being born again? Jesus says, you need to be born of the Spirit. That's a new life. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And the reason that can happen is because Christ rose from the dead. If you want a new start, if you feel like, I am so tired of life on my own, of living as if I've got this by myself, of the constant disappointment, Christ says, I offer new life by virtue of living from the dead, sealed by the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest, most encouraging passages for me is that image of Christ after he's, you know, he rises, he's seated at the right hand of Father, and we're told there'll be another time when he comes back. And at that time, he'll make everything that is wrong right. And his declaration is, behold, I make all things new. And part of what we have the opportunity to do if we're indwelled by this Holy Spirit, as we said just a little while ago, is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Every time you do something that sows the seeds of Eden. This is an old Jewish phrase that I think of from time to time, sowing the seeds of Eden. You know, Eden was this place of perfection, and then the fall, sin entered the world, and now we live in a place that is broken and marred. And every time you do something, filled by God's Spirit, 
that is glorifying to him and making this invisible kingdom visible every time you forgive somebody like we said last week. You speak that kind word. It's like you're sowing a seed of Eden. You're sowing a seed that's restoring the kingdom as it ought to be. And, and you know what? The thing about seeds are, I've done a lot of grass you know, planting over my life too. You throw that, there's a lot of seeds going out there. You don't see results sometimes for a long time. But you're sowing seeds. Christ says, I'm using you, a spirit-empowered believer, to make all things new. It's kind of like this old house, if you watch those TV shows. You go through and you see something that's just broken down, and you get these experts coming on and saying, here's how, I, I watch those things. It's all vicarious. I, I'm a terrible household fixer-upper. But for a moment, I'm glorious because I'm watching them, and I'm like, I envision myself being them and having that kind of knowledge, and I walk away and I don't have any of it. The difference here is Christ says, I am the one who is cleaning up this old house. And you're changed because of it. You do have a new life. It's not just a vicarious experience, something I have. It's in you, the Spirit of God living in you. And the resurrection is proof positive that he is capable and willing to do this work through the Spirit's power. You can contrast that with a Harvard professor of counseling who said to author Becky Pippert during her taking of the system, the course Systems of Counseling, he said, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. The counseling, he said, we can't change anybody's heart. We can give you coping skills and behavior modifications, but we can't change your heart. Go to a different department. See, if we have a spirit of independence, we say, I can change my heart. I can change your heart. It's not just individual lives. We tend, uh, at least in modern evangelicalism, to talk about me and Jesus. It's actually all of creation. Romans 8 that we looked at earlier says, the creation itself is groaning and awaiting something. Newness. The sowing of seeds without the weeds. You know, without the need to get our spiritual roundup in gear all the time as well. We're, the creation itself is yearning for that. And creation goes through these cycles as a picture of new life. From winter, when things die, to spring. Who loves looking at the new colors and flowers bursting forth? That's a picture of what God is doing through all creation. For us, in our context, spring's a perfect time to celebrate Easter. From death to life. The earth goes through this cycle. It's no mistake. And anyone who's lived in Cincinnati through winter knows how great spring is to look forward to. Anybody who's lived through this thing called a pandemic knows what it's like to hope and long for something going from death to life. And the resurrection, we have that. Jesus had a friend who died, Lazarus. He resurrected him from the dead or actually resuscitated him because unfortunately for Lazarus, he had to die again. When you're resurrected, there's no second death that comes along like this and he had to die again, the poor guy. But it's a foretaste of Jesus' resurrection and proof positive that Jesus can say things like, I am the resurrection and the life. See how Jesus attaches life and resurrection? I am the first fruits when he comes uh, up from the dead. I can do this. I have defeated death. 
look no more beyond me. That physical occurrence illustrates an internal and spiritual reality. New beginnings. New life. And Jesus conquering death assures us that no one is beyond his reach. We can all go from winter to spring. Because it's not our power that does it. And isn't God more glorified against the backdrop of a long winter with the splash of colors bursting out? You are not beyond his reach because he has conquered the greatest enemy of all, death. Your sin is a barrier he can overcome because he's overcome the greatest barrier of all. And so Peter says, the resurrection, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great mercy, he's given us new birth. But it's more than just new birth. It's also the source of a living hope. Because he goes on to say, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. There's a current and ongoing reality. And hope, as you know, has its eyes set on the future. But this hope exists always in the present. And it seems contextually that it is because the hope is not based on current circumstances. If things look bad, in other words, you still have reasons to hope no matter what. That's the message of Good Friday. And we didn't have a Good Friday service, but Good Friday is, is the day traditionally that Jesus was crucified and dead. And the resurrection hadn't occurred yet. Christ is in the grave. And there's, you know, a saying, but Sunday is a coming. But from Friday to Saturday, what are things looking like? Jesus has died. He said he's going to rise from the dead. He didn't really understand it. It hasn't happened yet. And I think most of us probably live in Saturday a lot. Waiting for the resurrection. Waiting for the, the new life. That's what hope is. It, it, Jesus says you don't have to, when you do live in what feels like a Saturday, you can know that there's a resolution coming. And it may not happen now or next week or until some future time that you never see, but the resurrection guarantees, it's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It will be fixed. I will make all things new. And so you can live in hope, a real hope, even when the resolution has not come yet. Because of the resurrection of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. Uh, Pastor Duke Kwan, an author too, says, For the modern Christian, the in-betweenness of Saturday is most difficult to endure. The silence, confusion, uncertainty, waiting. These are things in your life that aren't resolved. It feels like maybe the resurrection hasn't happened. There is no Holy Spirit power. It may be around you or even inside of you. You feel like you're living in Saturday. Sunday's coming, but it sure feels like Saturday right now. And he goes on to say, yet... This is where most of life is lived. We mustn't distract ourselves from its agony. Watch, wait, clarity will come, but not yet. And living in the not yet is really what hope is all about. 
And the Bible takes a very practical view here on these matters. A living hope does make a difference in the here and now. Peter, for example, offers in this passage a perspective on suffering. There's lots of language about that in his books. These people he's writing to had hard lives. The resurrection frames their perspective on that, in large part because it reminds them their Savior suffered. But also, it does have a goal. And it's right here in this passage. Maybe you caught it as we were reading through this. He says down there in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So these people are having a hard time. The resurrection's occurred, and this is, this is a living hope that you can have, but they feel, they feel defeated. Why, have the, why does this happen? These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at his second coming. Our present trials could crush us or perhaps lead us to despair or maybe drive us to cynicism or perhaps even doubt whether God exists or he loves us at all, if not for the living hope secured by Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is proof positive you can have a living hope. And if that's the case, if you're living in that space, then Peter here implores us to remember the living hope given through that resurrection. Instead, our sufferings, whatever they are, call us to deeper reliance on him. That's what faith is the recognition that we are not God and that we desperately need him. It's, it's, it's just a different way of when, when things come and it feels like it's falling apart and you're losing, you're losing the sense of God's presence or that, that this stuff is real. That's where God is perhaps more present than ever before because then we can be the kind of people who say, God, I need you. And we've talked about control before. We, all of us are way more controlling than we realize. It, it, just, it just takes getting married maybe to recognize that or having kids or starting a, a job. Somewhere along the line, you're going to realize, I control precious little. And if you feel like the weight and the burden then of controlling things you can't control, that's crushing. You're not designed to do that. And I, I think that some of what this passage does is when we see that, not to be overcome, there, there's an opportunity to rest in that and to recognize my faith is growing in this beyond anything that I can control. And it, it, feels, it feels out of control because you are. So what do you do with that? If, if you're somebody who's not embraced Christ yet, then it's all on you. You're not, you're not designed to bear the weight of that. And if you're somebody who feels like you are, then you have, if you're a believer and, and you still feel like you're being crushed, then run to the one who understands what that's like. He died under that weight. You have someone to go to. This is why we talk about being people who embrace dependence and find strength. Three times I prayed for God to take away this Thing that was assailing me, Paul says. And at the end of it all, I had to realize his grace is sufficient. 
Otherwise, I might rely on myself. And Paul says this, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Perhaps in the midst of your trial, it's the greatest opportunity for you to recognize you have to rely on God. And guess what? He's the best person to rely on. Because he's not the counseling department that can't change hearts. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who brings new life and a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So you can have hope, always. Even though you feel like it's Saturday till the day you die. You feel the sentence of death. God is leading you to greater reliance on him. He raises the dead. And suffering reminds us, frankly, that this is not our final home. It isn't. It's not, it's not worthless, but we are sojourners. We're temporary citizens. You know, there's a gravestone. You'll have a second date there. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to live forever now? You're going to find something they've been searching for forever? That elixir you take that makes your life go on and on. Death cannot be escaped. But Christ, through rising from the dead, tells us that's not the end of the story. There will always be a reason for living hope through the resurrection. He's a first fruits and a down payment of what is to come. And that really gets us to our final point, which it's also the guarantee of a future inheritance. In verse 4, Peter says, He's given us new, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. If you're somebody who likes investing in things with guaranteed ROI, a return on your investment, there is no greater return than God's kingdom. It's guaranteed. You store up things here where moth and rust will destroy you die, you don't take it with you. You store up things and treasures in heaven. It's for eternity. And Peter is saying, you put your faith in this reality. It guarantees a future inheritance. There's no pyramid scheme here. There's, there's, there's no Ponzi scheme going on. This is, the proof positive is Christ rising from the dead. It's a done deal. You're living in Saturday, but Sunday's coming. And that inheritance that you will receive cannot perish, spoil, or fade. There's so little that's permanent in this life. So little. But the resurrection of Christ secures for the believer an inheritance that cannot be taken away. I remember back in the 2000s, somebody, a, a friend of mine who worked for Procter & Gamble his whole career, and I don't understand stock options. I've never had that kind of thing in my life. But apparently for him... His value heading into retirement was attached in some significant way to Procter & Gamble's stock. And I remember, I think the only time I've, well, maybe I've been in that main building downtown twice. They've got a big picture of their stock thing. And I can't remember what the year was, but I remember it plummeted. Some of you might remember. It just like dropped in half. And it was on the day that he was retiring. Like, and, and then you're locked into the, I don't understand all that stuff. All I know is the dude was depressed. Because he'd, he'd been working his whole life for this. And on the day when he was retiring, 
it was almost all gone. And, you know, in 2008, when everything happened and everybody, if you have a lot of money and investments, you have a lot to lose. I guess that's the one upside to not having very much. I was kind of like that too. Everybody was commiserating over the loss of my, you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose. But for those who did, it was devastating. There is absolutely no guarantee. Jesus knows physical death is a reality of our existence. But if you know Jesus, that moment of death is not the end. There's a life yet to come, and he is the door to that life and the one who guarantees and secures it for you. A future inheritance that is guaranteed. I mean, come on, Stephen Popovich, you're a CFO. If you went to the CEO and said, I've got something guaranteed return on your investment, it will never disappear. Yeah, I'm in. Jesus says, that's what it is like to trust in me and to depend on me. And the proof that he can do it is that he rose from the dead. That's what Peter is saying. In the longest chapter in the Bible on the importance of the resurrection of Christ, I've tried to read this, 1 Corinthians 15 and the KJV before. For those of you who like the King James Version, I'll confess I understand 5% of what I'm reading. It is very complex in many respects. Even in kind of more modern English, it's difficult. But Paul is making this argument basically. If, we, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, only in this life we are to be pitied more than all men. It's kind of like Pascal's wager. Yeah, I think we've mentioned that a, a while ago. I, I can't remember if it was in this context or not, but you've heard of maybe Pascal's wager. Ba basically, you know, it's a, a kind of a classical apologetic argument of sorts. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a mathematician who said, look, if you live your whole life as if there is no God, and then you die and you find out there is, you're in trouble. But if you live your entire life as if there is a God, and you die and you find out there isn't, what have you lost? The presumption, of course, is that living life as if there is God is a full life. So he says, if you're going to bet, bet on God. <laughs> that's what he says. Now, Paul is saying, like, you know, Blaze, that sounds like a nice argument, but that's kind of pathetic. If you only have hope in this life, we're to be pitied above all else. This is just a game. This is just kind of a nice little, you, you're nice people. We all get together. We sing a few songs. We give a couple pep talks. We walk outside. We look for some eggs. We throw some cake at each other. And then we go home. And that's pretty much it. That's kind of pathetic. And Paul isn't laying his life down for that nonsense. Jesus didn't either. Because it's true, it's real. And if it really makes a difference only in this life, it does make a difference in this life. But only we're to be pitied. And if Christ didn't really raise from the dead, then Paul says elsewhere, preaching is useless. This is just, just what are we doing here, really? Occupying some time on a Sunday morning when we could be sleeping in? Doing some yard work? You know, maybe our kids have a chance to do something that's kind of, that's not what it's about. If Christ didn't really raise from the dead, this whole thing is useless. But he did. And Paul says there's proof of it. Peter says there's proof of it. Changed lives, new lives say it really happened. Living hope says it is true. And it points to a future inheritance that can never be taken away. 
No matter how sorrowful our experiences in life, no matter how sad our circumstances might be, the promise of the resurrection, the reality of it, assures us there is something to look forward to that is better and that is complete, even in the best possible life we can have. Jesus says he is the one who can assure you of that future. It's something for which we all long. Isn't it? Don't we long for that? It seems what we truly long for cannot be attained in this world if we're honest with ourselves. C.S. Lewis made the same observation in Mere Christianity. Some, somewhat through the book, more a little more towards the end, he says, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. If you're really the kind of person who's going to be serious about taking a look, you'll recognize what you long for, what you want, it just can't be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this, that, in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love. Remember that? You fall in love. The longings to be, to be known and to, to have the affection of someone and to be cherished and to experience the joys of it too. Or, or first think of some foreign country, some, some promise of something different. Or first take up some subject that excites us, whatever that might be. Their longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy you know, there's so many quotes we could throw up here about money, too. People who have all the money in the world and say, this is it. Or win Super Bowls and say, I thought there was more. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. What Peter is saying is that Christ's resurrection is the it. The Spirit's indwelling power in your life is the it. A down payment guaranteeing what is to come. And the fullness of that is in the not yet in many respects. It's real, it's substantial, but there's a time coming well, we're living in all that hope of what is to come when it actually happens, and that's at Christ's return. And you will spend your entire life chasing it, whether you recognize it or not, until you find your rest in Christ. Like Augustine said, you know, we are longing, we are searching for this, this peace, this something that's it. You will never find it until you find Christ. And then rest in him. There's something more. But it's also something real that we can experience in the now through the power of the resurrection. New life, a living hope, a future inheritance. If you feel hungry, I was praying about hunger at the beginning of this. Uh, hunger inside of your soul, turn to Jesus. He'll give you bread. If you feel dead and like life is purposeless and meaningless, meaningless you need Christ. And his spirit is the one who gives you new life and guarantees a return on your investment way beyond the scope of the best cryptocurrencies in the world. 
There's no guarantees. With Christ there is. His resurrection from the dead is proof positive. Father, I pray that you would make us a dependent people, dependent on your Holy Spirit. I can certainly think of times in my own life when I've been brought to a point of absolute dependence. And it's there in those moments when more profoundly I am brought to the point of relying on God than ever before. When we look at the resurrection, and we didn't spend time proving it, though there are great, many good rational reasons to suggest that Christ did rise from the dead. We're assuming that reality. And we pray that we would enter into it. And perhaps maybe, maybe some, for some people, this is just an exercise, a, a nice Easter Sunday. We pray it would be more than that. It would be a day when we taste new life through the resurrection of Christ. A living hope. New life signals something at the beginning. Living hope signals something ongoing. Some of us may need new life. Some of us might need hope today. We know new life, but we've lost sight. And because of the resurrection on this Easter Sunday, we can have a renewed and restored hope, a deeper dependence on the things of God. And a reminder that this is not useless. This is not in vain. That we have no reason ultimately to be so defeated because Christ's resurrection is the exclamation point. Death has been defeated. The down payment of what is to come. The assurance that what he says is true and real. And there will be a day when we see all that we have longed for come about. And we pray that you would give us a deeper taste of what that looks like, a greater hunger for the things of God, and, and fill us up. May our food be to do the will of God on this Resurrection Sunday. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.